This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our topic is, if you saw the flyer, very interesting. I'm going to start. This is good. This isn't just teasing. This is not dear Father Teller's fault. But the flyer that the Thomistic Institute uh, staff put together asks this, or it has this as the title. And it is this, Thomas Aquinas, colon, a medieval physiologist. <laughs> and physiologist for the audio is spelled, it says Thomas Aquinas, a medieval, and then it has written P-H-Y-S-C-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. How many of you noticed that? Did you notice that in the flyer? A few didn't, but a few did. Now, this is not to tease uh, the dear staff of the Thomistic Institute in Washington, the young men and women who put together all these things and handle logistics. I just teach philosophy and theology. I can't handle that stuff. So I'm not, I would be worse than they would. It would just be words on a white screen like got milk kind of advertisements <laughs> if I were doing it. So there, I want to praise them. However, I think that this spelling and this question, Thomas Aquinas, a medieval physiologist, and of course we meant to say psychologist, is a fitting metaphor because uh, one might have a reaction to this talk to say that of course Thomas Aquinas is not really a psychologist. Because today he, we have certain resources, tools, instruments, methods, technology, practices, modern thought that enable us to do psychology, which of course are inaccessible to Thomas Aquinas. So maybe he did an analogous science, discipline, like physiology, but it definitely is not psychology. And so when I saw that this morning, I noticed the title. I said, you know, that's fitting, actually. Most people, when they see the question about medieval science, would probably feel, even if they didn't express that, Aquinas and those of the medieval period were not doing real psychology, or at least not psychology, as it's really practiced today. They're doing something analogous. Um, so what will we do today? We are going to look at what Aquinas, his thinking is about the nature of the human person in general and about the nature of the human soul in particular. Generally speaking, subject matters which uh, comport with the science that we know today as psychology. But before we do that, we're still in the intro. Dominicans love a long windup, so I apologize. The intro could be everything. There was one professor years ago uh, at our seminary in Washington that he came in with a syllabus, and every class period he didn't get past the first point, so he came with a new syllabus. So we're going to spend two classes on this point, and then the next he's still not off of it. By the end of the semester, he had covered like two of the points on like a twenty-page, twenty-point syllabus. That's very Dominican. I will move past the introduction, but we're going to dwell there just a bit more. So before, in the, by way of introduction, I want to observe or uh, state what I will not do today. So if you come looking for this, I hate to disappoint you, and I would ask that you maybe recalibrate your expectations and uh, because I am not equipped to do these things. So what will we not do this evening together? First, we will not do three things. We will not, I will not, we will not, compare and contrast in detail, systematically, point by point, Aquinas' conception of psychology with what modern psychology and psychologists study. So we will not, point one, say this is what Aquinas said about the human soul, about the human person, and here's what modern psychologists have said. The reason for that is I do not pretend to have or Imagine that I have even uh, a, 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 a subatomic particle's worth of qualification to talk about modern psychology. Many of you are much more competent in those areas. So any compare and contrast that I would do between modern psychology and Thomistic or Aquinas' psychology would be inadequate. So we're not going to do that. Secondly, and consequently, we will not critique Aquinas' conceptions or practice of psychology in light of modern psychology and vice versa. We won't use Aquinas to critique modern psychology or psychologists for the same reason. I don't know enough 
about modern psychology or psychologists to levy a critique in either direction. So no compare contrast, and consequently, no pistols out shooting at each other. And finally, the third thing that uh, we will not do is just as I will not critique, we will not critique Aquinas in light of modern psychology or modern psychology in light of Aquinas' psychology, I will not advance or propose to you a specific form or a concrete expression of how one might fuse the two. So point one, we're not gonna compare and contrast them as different. Point two, we're not gonna shoot and say this one's better than the other. And finally, we're not gonna try to blend them together and make it like a little modern and medieval uh, sandwich, which is very popular. I know if you ever wanna get a PhD, I just basically, all you gotta do is find an old idea, find a new idea, show how they're similar, how they're different and put them together. Bam, we will call you doctor tomorrow. That's how you do it. We're not, no one's gonna be a doctor or have a doctorate after this. So, um, and for the same reasons above, I don't know enough to know what kind of sandwich I'd be making. I would misrepresent modern psychology. And it's much more uh, important that qualified people like you perhaps would do that work if it's possible. So that's the negative, things we will not do. Now, what will we do? We will, three things, we will look at the pre-disciplinary goals, priorities, and interests of Aquinas. Things, what do we mean by pre-disciplinary? We mean those priorities that he had as an intellectual, as a philosopher, as a theologian, as a scientist, if we understand science broadly in terms of a search for knowledge, what pre-disciplinary, what universal, transcendent, goals and priorities that he would bring to any discipline, whether it be physics, metaphysics, theology, psychology, what pre-disciplinary, or even we could say pan-disciplinary, academic, intellectual goals and interests did Aquinas bring to whatever he studied? That's what we're gonna start, we're gonna look at that. Because, point two, we will then look at how his pre-disciplinary goals those priorities and interests which he had for any subject that he considered, how do these feed into the question of the human soul or psyche? In other words, how do his pre-disciplinary priorities and interests, how do these shape his disciplinary interest in the human soul and the human person? Because he wrote a lot about the human soul and about the human person. And so point one, we're going to look at for any science subject, what he was interested in, two, how these shaped, how he approached the question, what is the human person? What is the human soul? And then three, and finally, we will consider um, some interesting, maybe salient details which come about from the predisciplinary and the disciplinary uh, observations we will make that might be areas for you who do know modern psychology and contemporary thought, maybe things that you might be interested in picking up things for the future, questions, priorities, projects, doctoral dissertation, perhaps, maybe, I don't know. Okay, so that's what we will do tonight. Is that clear, more or less, what we're trying to do? Okay, so again, if you came, and we can do this in the Q&A, if you wanna go through some specifics about Aquinas' psychology, we can do that, but what we're trying to do here is more meta-psychology. You can throw, that's another way to get a dissertation. You throw meta in front of a discipline, of a science, of a subject, and look at the big picture. People love that too. We're gonna to do, yeah, again, no doctors tonight, but you know, we're gonna do some meta looking at what Aquinas' uh, approach to psychology is. Now, if you'd like to study Aquinas more on this subject, in its detail, what concretely and particularly, specifically he says about matters psychological, I'll stop using scare quotes in a moment because we'll start defining terms, but um, psychology, uh, when I say Thomistic psychology, Aquinas' psychology, we're talking about how those things that he was interested in about the human soul would might overlap with what modern psychologists would be interested in. There are three primary works. There's the Summa Theologiae, also known or written as Theologica, two spellings, same work, Summa Theologiae, that's free online, in Latin, in English, you can buy it on Amazon. In the first part of that work, he talks about the soul and the human person. 
So that's one of the three places primarily where he treats the nature of the human soul or what we would call today psychology. Second place, he wrote a commentary, namely a book explaining, expositing another book. And that book is written by a man named Aristotle. And Aristotle wrote many, many things. And one of his books is on the soul or on the mind, De Anima. There you see, some of you know Latin, I'm sure, but the anima, we talk about an, de anima, animation, animated, animals, the soul, principle of motion, principle of life. If I animate something, I have movement. That's the Latin word for the soul, for the mind. So Aquinas wrote a commentary expositing, expounding Aristotle's study of the soul. And of course, you know Aristotle's way before Jesus, even. This is, this is, this is not Christian, this is way before. It's BC territory, before Christ. And Aquinas read and said, this guy's smart. And he says, my students need to understand this, so I'm going to write a commentary on that. So he did that. So we have the Summa, which is his kind of meta work about his whole thought. You can read his commentary, also available online, on the nature of the soul, or I should say Aristotle's study of the soul. And then third, see, this is where we're going to move to that chalkboard in a second because now we're running out of space. But the third work you can look at is the disputed questions on the soul. Or day on Now, what are these? So this second work is a commentary on a text, the text of the Greek philosopher Aristotle on the soul. This other work is disputed questions about the soul. And what these this transcribes Aquinas going into a room full of the intellectuals of his day, and they would ask him various questions about the soul. Try to stump him, and he would answer. So that's, it's more driven, that third work is driven more by the dialogical encounter with students, his colleagues, other philosophers and theologians. So, by way of intro, if you want to know more about what Aquinas had to say, in his own words, read those three works. And of course, if I may, the, one of the more accessible summaries is this book by Father Robert Brennan called Thomistic Psychology. You can get this on Amazon. This is an old book. I uh, reworked it in parts, brought it back in a new edition. But um, I'm shocked at this soul. And the publisher asked me to do this, like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's going to sell. This sounds a lot. People are interested in what Aquinas has to say. Thomistic psychology. Now, a brief word. Some of you know this. When you see the word Thomistic, that's the way of saying Thomas Aquinas' thought. Usually, we use the last name, like John Calvin. You talk about Calvinistic or Einstein for Einsteinian, Einsteinian. But for, for Aquinas, we don't say Aquinesian or something. We say Thomistic after his first name. So you see Thomistic, like the Thomistic Institute, we're talking about Aquinas' thought or something inspired by him. Okay, conclusion, uh, more or less over. What are, part one, what are the predisciplinary goals that Aquinas brought to any subject, whether it's the human soul, psychology, whether it's God, theology, metaphysics, the study of being as being, physics, the study of movable being. What was Aquinas after? Aquinas was always interested in knowing what reality was. What is real? What is the case? And then derivatively and consequently, what is not the case? So whether he's studying God, theology, which we usually associate with Aquinas, or uh, physics, motion, movement, and change in material beings, He's pursuing this under the aspect of what is the case? What is real? That's the overarching, the ultimate priority that inspired all of Aquinas' what we call today academic work. He did not view himself in terms of, again, his intentionality, his goals, as a creative thinker. So unlike today, when Aquinas came to the question of God or of the soul or of, you know, uh, plants and trees and began to write about them, think about them, he didn't say, you know, how can I distinguish myself from Aristotle? How can I blend what my teacher Albert in Germany said, the German school, with the French school and my Parisian college that I teach in Paris? That was not his intention. He was not trying to mix stuff. He was not trying to be creative. He was not trying to be innovative. As a goal, that did happen, but it was not the goal. His goal was simply to know the way things are. 
And the way things are, reality itself, the X factor, it can be a rock, it can be God, it can be a tree, it can be love, it can be sex, it can be murder. What If something's real, it falls under the category of reality and therefore is knowable. And the way that we, what happens when we know with certitude the nature of reality is reality outside the mind, because reality is real whether you know it or not, whether you think about it or not, whether you believe in it or not. That's Aquinas' presupposition. There's something real out there. And when that something real out there is understood in here, in my mind, then we have something called science. And I'm going to, and it's in Latin, of course, it's scientia. Now, science in the Aristotelian, Aristotle, the Medievals, the Dominican, the Franciscan, all the intellectuals of that period, for them, science had a very precise meaning, which is slightly nuanced from how we think of it today, but can include how we think of it today. So when I say science today, I'm thinking of things like lab, I'm thinking about things like measurement. I'm thinking about things like um, uh, the scientific method made prominent later, where you have controlled experiments that you can replicate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very quantifiable kinds of things, generally speaking, the sciences. Now, of course, you have the distinction between the hard sciences and the soft sciences. That's not what Aquinas was thinking about. For him, and not just for him, for everybody, science was certain, not conjectural, not opinion, not tentative. He was after certain knowledge about reality by means of causes, because it's through causes that we arrive at certitude. Now, just to summarize, Aquinas' main goal in life as an intellectual was to know the way things are. He believed that reality existed. He believed he was real, but he believed that the mind can know the way things are outside of itself. Not fully, but can at least begin to approximate the structures of reality. Even a child, like there's a reality of the ice cream cone. My little uh, niece, Lena, or we'll, we'll pick on Abraham. Abraham, who's like three, if you ask him to talk about the nature of sucrose and sugar and dairy, and he has no clue, but he does have a knowledge about what an ice cream cone is. And if you try to trick him, hand him an ice cream cone versus, you know, in, a, in a, an ice cream white substance in a, in a cone, instead of like a pine cone in another cone, he's going to know very differently. These are not the same. And that's just to say that even a child who's very young and excited by sweet substances, who can't explain things like chemistry or culinary skill, knows something about reality that's outside their mind. And if I tell Abraham, Abraham, after I give him the pine cone to lick on, he doesn't like that. I say, just imagine, go inside yourself and, and discover the sweetness within. He would look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm interested in the sweetness out there that's in the freezer, not from the pine tree. Okay, even a, so little Abraham and all of our, we, have, we can th multiply the examples. Reality's real out there. And everyone knows reality, but the academics and the intellectuals, they can arrive at a formalized, systematic, certain conception of reality called science. Science is distinct from dialectics and opinion because it's certain, and we arrive at certain knowledge through causes. Now, why? How does this all work? This works because all knowledge arises from sense perception. Point one, we'll come back to that in just a second. Point two, you arrive at science, certain knowledge through causes, by moving from what is more known to the lesser known. And this is your starting point. So, all children, back to my little nephew Abraham, poor guy. Um, <laughs> The senses, five senses, hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, etc. they're all outward directed. You don't sense smelling. You don't smell smelling. You smell a smell. You don't see sight. You see an object. You see something. 
You don't feel feeling. I feel something, reality, and that engenders the feelings. The senses, by their nature, all five of them, are outwardly directed. And from the first moment of my consciousness, when I touch the wall, feel the grass, you see us with young children, they're, you know, they're just sensing, tasting everything. They are immediately presented with the fact that there is something real out there. And they know it. They don't have any Descartes, Cartesian confusion yet. That, don't have, that comes later. My little nephew, Abraham, when he was just you know, walking around touching things, he did not wonder if he really existed. He did not think he had to move through a series of existential questionings and skepticism to arrive at a first indisputable truth. He just said, oh, I feel this. Yeah, this ice cream cone's good. That pine cone is not so good. I like the feeling of this carpet. I do not like the feeling of the hot stove. Okay, and we're moving on. And that is really, in a nutshell, the heart of Aquinas' presuppositions about reality. All of his even most elaborate, intricate, sublime thinking, and it is elaborate, intricate, and sublime at many points, begins here. Now, some of us are very smart. Now, because you're smart, you might say, and this is a legitimate question, or, or ask, how is this, uh, is this not naive? Is this not gullible? We all know sensation can be uh, frustrated, can be manipulated. There's things like mirages. People have take LSD and start seeing all kinds of interesting things. People, you know, get inebriated and their sensation and motor skills are off. Is it not a little bit naive to start everything from just this first initial encounter with reality through the senses by which we arrive at the first truths about things? Namely, I am real because if I weren't real, and that weren't real, I wouldn't be able to sense it. Is that not a naive trust in reality? And the answer to that is, well, uh, no. Because even through an awareness of things like mirages, like alternated sensation, we only know that a mirage is a mirage and that we're not seeing reality clearly when we're on LSD because we know what normally happens when you sense things. So Aquinas' presupposition is that sensation, if you don't start with sensation, you have nowhere to start with. If you don't start outside of yourself, and instead you start in yourself, that was the Enlightenment project. Let's start in the human mind without any reference to outside. You're never going to get out of your mind. And any attempts or any uh, configurations or uh, questions that consider about whether or not we're really sensing things accurately, even those questions and their resolution depend upon prior sensations and thinking clearly about it. You can't escape it. So I'll leave it. I know you're all very smart. You could write many dissertations about that, as there have been, about whether we can trust sensation and reality if it's real. But Aquinas thought any sane person, like my little nephew Levi, any child, is naturally open to the way things are, to reality. And once you have that first indubitable starting point, that there's reality out there, because how do I know that? I'm feeling something, participating in reality. Then I can move from that certain real knowledge that's external to me to things that are less known to me. I move from the certain, the evident, to the uncertain. So what happens? I'll just give you an example. So. I'm aware by touching this, that I'm sensing something hard and rather cool. Piece of wood tacked into the wall. From that, I derive at the reality that I am real, because if I weren't real, I wouldn't be able to be sensing something. And there is something outside of me, which is real as well. Just from this phenomenon of touch, which is the first and foundational sense, by the way. We won't get into that, but if you want to pursue Aquinas' psychology and Aristotle's, it's there. From that, and then I arrive at a principle known as the principle of non-contradiction, which is simply something cannot both be and not be at the same time in the same respect. And how do I arrive at that? I arrive at that because once I have some experience of something, I'm aware of my own existence and of the existence of the thing that I'm sensing, 
And the law of non-contradiction naturally comes from that, or I should say I'm naturally aware of it, because it, it would be ridiculous to say that I am sensing this and I am real, and at the same time, I'm not sensing this and I'm not really real. You have to have something that is in order to do something. And you cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. There is order and coherence and intelligibility to the world. So Aquinas got that from sense perception. And he got the principle of non-contradiction. And then from that, he moves on through a variety of other truths to all the way up to things like God exists and that the soul is real, that the body is real, that murder is wrong. From those principles, from those experiences, he can prove through reason profound truths like God's existence, that the soul is real, that murder is wrong. Now, we won't walk through all of those proofs, but this is the starting point. I just want you to, we're getting, these are, the, these are the pre-disciplinary convictions, his method. Aquinas believes reality is real, that we can have official, formal, certain, causal knowledge, which begins in sense perception, starts outside of myself, and therefore I can really know things, even in a more elaborate way, that are less than evident. My, my little nephew can't articulate the law of non-contradiction, but he knows it implicitly. Just like he knows there's a real distinction between having an ice cream cone and not having an ice cream cone, even if he hasn't formalized it. And once you have that formalization and the knowledge that you have about reality has certainty and is grounded in causes, that's when you have science. Now, there are two types of sciences. Two types of knowledge that humans can have that are certain and that are uh, robust. They are speculative, speculative science, and then there's practical science. What's the distinction between these? Speculative science, and you'll see why this is important for psychology in a moment. Speculative science is distinct from practical science in that the end, the purpose, the motivation for speculative science is simply to know the way things are. So to give a, just a robust, uh, or just a simple example, um, if my dad, who used to be a mechanic when he was young, if he's working on the car and I'm there and I'm looking at him taking out spark plugs and carburetors and whatever else is in there, I don't have a lot of speculative knowledge about cars. I don't have any knowledge about cars. Um, <laughs> If my interest is primarily, I just want to know how this works, what it is, that's speculative. If, however, I want to know the way things are, what is real, in order to do something, then it's practical. So, if I come to watch my father work in the car, repair it, so I too can repair the car, I have at least speculative knowledge, because I know you can't fix a car practically unless you know how it works. So I have speculative, but I have an added extended purpose. I want to do something. Same with the human body. If I'm a biologist, it's, it's, you can study how the human body works, physiology, just to understand what it means, how, how the circulatory system works, respiration, uh, brain waves. I'm nearing the end of my scientific vocabulary, but you get the picture. I would assume most you know, scientists, they're just trying to study how this works. But then you have, as an extension, practically, the doctor who studies all of that in order to do things with that. So Aquinas divides all sciences, which are about reality, vis-a-vis -vis us, as a scientist, as a knower of reality, we can know things speculatively, which means just to know the way they are. Or we can know things practically, which is to know the way they are, but then with the intention of doing something with it. So now, this is important for psychology because one of the things that falls under the category of reality is, of course, the human person. So anything that's real, the the Aquinas, as a scientist, scientist in this sense, a man of scientia, he's interested in. And so he approaches the question of the human person and the question of the human soul 
through the lens, through the objectivity, through the intentionality, through the purposeness, with the rigor of science of science. So that's the first that's the first thing I want to point out. This is why Aquinas is interested in the human soul and the human person, because it's real. He's interested in anything that's real. He believes the purpose of the human mind is to do what it does, to know things. He believes that you're more activated, more perfected by knowing reality than by not knowing reality. He believes that you will be the same person after you graduate from MIT than you were before you graduate from MIT, but you will be more perfected after you graduate MIT. Why? Because you will have more knowledge of the way things are. You won't just exist in reality statically, but because of the learning and your proficiency in the disciplines you engage, you will be more perfected because you are now more deliberately, consciously, and intentionally participating in the reality that you live in. Now, let us move then to Aquinas' more specific consideration of human psychology, of psychology. And these, as I said at the beginning, these are all predisciplinary conceptions. So even if this were, if we were talking about metaphysics, this would all apply. We were talking about theology, this would all apply. We were talking about logic, this would all apply. If we're talking about physics, this would all apply. But we're talking about psychology, and all of this applies in a very determinative way to the question of the human soul. And this is important. Now we're shifting to his, how does this all apply now to his consideration of the human soul? First thing, he doesn't think that the human soul, the study of the human soul, what we would call today psychology, is something of faith. Now, Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, dressed like this. He literally wore these same type of probably less clean because thanks to practical things like machine washers, he didn't have those. His was probably a lot dirtier, but black and white, this is what he wore. Um, however, he was also, as you know, and as I am, Catholic priest. And we all know about those Catholic priests. They're very interested in getting people to do things and getting people not to do things. And we might say, for being charitable, they help people become better persons and help them to stop being worse persons. That's the charitable. You can say other worse things about priests as well. So, and they're men of faith. They pray a lot. They pray the rosary. They love Our Lady. They love Jesus. They have a spirituality. And therefore, they're men primarily of faith, of belief, not of science. Not of what is knowable naturally by human reason, but what is only knowable by some type of trust in another's testimony or testament, like the Old Testament of the Bible or the New Testament of the Bible. So we might be tempted then to view Aquinas coming to the question of what is the human person, what is the human soul, as if he's going to come at that question, at that discipline, at psychology, through the eyes of faith. But that is not what he does. He comes at it through reason. So that's the first point. Aquinas is not doing psychology with his Bible in one hand, with the Pope whispering to him in the other hand, with his rosary beads in his third hand. He has three hands. <laughs> that's not what he's doing. He, like all of us, believes that we can know something about reality that we have access to. And the human person is a sensible being. When you walk in a room, I can hear you. I can see you. Sometimes for less than pleasant, we can even smell somebody when they come in the room. We don't want those, if they smell pleasant, that's wonderful. The senses, the physicality of the human person presents with to the knowing person, to the scientist, to the philosopher, to the psychologist, an object that we can know. So human persons have a sensible aspect to them, their body, which reflects, manifests, participates in, is united to what is not sensible, the soul. 
So Aquinas comes at the study of the human person, first of all, through reason, not through faith, first and foremost. Why? Because the human person, and the human soul even, is knowable through the unity of the human person, who is both body, which I can sense, and soul, which I cannot sense directly, but I do have some indication of what the soul is up to by the body. How do we know this? Back to my little nephew, Abraham. He didn't know this. He's probably going to want, uh, yeah, he would, Abraham something else. Um, I just saw him the other day, so that's why he's, he always wants to fight. He knows a sin to hit a priest, but he didn't believe that. So he kept doing it, you know, trying to wrestle. He's, he's a real man. I, I love him very much. He's a good man. My sister, my poor sister. She's got four little ones, and whenever she just had two, there she was, and I hadn't seen her in years. I said, hey, Jamie, how you doing? She goes, I didn't realize it was possible to be this tired. And now she's got four little ones. They're all growing up, but it's, it's wonderful to see them. So even my little nephew, Abraham, or Aber as they call him, he's not a psychologist. He's not a philosopher, not a theologian. He cannot, he's not a scientist, but he understands the unity of the human person, such that when he smacks his sister, Lena, which he's known to do from time to time, and he's not allowed to do that. And then Lena, as she is prone to do, runs happily sometimes to tell my, mo uh, my her, their mother, my sister, what just happened. And my sister, Jamie, comes around the corner looking for Abraham with a physical expression, a face, a tone of voice. Abraham knows that there is something unseen, how she feels, what my sister thinks, that is expressed through her body, through her expressions. He recognizes that my sister's Abraham, the voice, the, the eyes, the flared nostrils, that the hand back to give him a spanking or whatever that she does, you know, or a timeout, all of these things are not random physiological movements but they all manifest and come from the spiritual principle of motion of her being, her soul. What she thinks, how she feels, what she's going to do, her decision, her will. So even again, we'll come back. That's why I set up all this predisciplinary pre stuff. Abraham doesn't know how to articulate any of this, but he knows when my sister comes in the room like, Abraham, that means one thing. And when she comes in, Abraham, that means something else. And Abraham doesn't need faith, doesn't need Jesus to understand. Though my sister's looking at him like this, running for the hills. You know, when she's coming out with an ice cream cone and a smile because he's done all of his homework, or whatever he does, that means something else. Reason, he can know that just by sensation, by thinking, cause and effect. And he recognizes that she is a united, integral whole. She is a body. He is a body. But she and he, any human person, is not only bodily, but is also spiritual. Because there are some experiences in the human person that are not ultimately reducible to the physiological. For example, this is us going against materialism for the moment. But let's pretend someone were to just pause the tape here, literally the tape, this one day go up, pause the podcast and say, I think Father Cuddy's all wet. He pauses, he's jumping around. He says he's being reasonable, but he's being a little bit excessive here. He says because the body can act differently and express things that therefore there's something spiritual, immaterial, non-physical undergirding it. Doesn't that beg the question? Because I can do, why are not all my feelings, all of my thinkings, all of my operations ultimately reducible to the body? How do I know that there truly exists things that are not physical. So now I'm talking through the computer to this objector who might have paused the tape after you've unpaused it. And I'd say, thank you, that's a very good question. First of all, uh, we definitely know that there are immaterial things which exist. How do we know that? And I begin to offer a reason. If my objector here didn't like that, he would say, well, that's illogical. And I say, bam. The principle of logic, non-contradiction. Is that physical? Do you buy some of that at Walmart? The Target? Amazon? No. The principle of non-contradiction is real. We feel bound to it. 
but it is not physically sensible. It's not quantifiably uh, discrete. So first point, there is such a thing as something immaterial which truly exists, like the law of non-contradiction. Secondly, how do we know that the soul is the principle uh, of a person in a person that's not physical? Because we have brain waves, even the intellect, you know, you Thomists, you Catholics, you philosophers, you theologians want to distinguish the intellect, which would be the rational part of the soul that knows, from its organ, physically, the brain. Why do we need to have both? Why can't the human person just be a physiological process in the brain? Why do we need a spiritual power called the soul that uses the brain? And the answer is this. If everything that happened in this, our understanding were physical, then we would have the Goliath problem. You all know the story of Goliath. There was a little guy named David, later became king of Israel, great giant Goliath, Old Testament. Goliath was beaten up on the Israelites. The king was kind of afraid, yes, this little kid, David, to take some stones in the slingshot and shoot it. And Goliath, you know, he put a stone through Goliath's head. This is in the book of Samuel, for Samuel. Boom, he dies. We, if we were purely material, only bodily, we would have the Goliath problem. Because we would not be able to know something or have something from outside of us enter into our consciousness except in a physical way. Because if we're only physical, there can be no spiritual union or non-physical union. So, for example, if we were not, had, did not have a spiritual component, a soul component, a psyche component that was united to the body and therefore was physical, but not only physical, then every time I would not be able to know a stone without that stone entering physically in some way into my personhood. Because how does knowing work? It's a spiritual process. When I see a stone, what happens? My senses see, okay, we got something rock. We got a rock, we got something hard, we got something gray, we got something granular, we got something heavy. My mind does what's called abstraction, where I take the form, the soul, the shape of the soul of the rock, and then it retains. My mind in the spiritual component can hold on to that spiritual shape, the form, the soul, broadly speaking, of a rock. Human knowledge bespeaks spiritual things because human knowledge itself is deeply spiritual, or else the union of a rock outside of me with me would occur physically, and again, we'd have the Goliath problem, um, and I'd be dead. Knowledge itself has spiritual, and by spiritual, I mean non-material components. How do I know this? I can know things that are not material. Again, the law of non-contradiction. I can understand. Yes, something cannot both be and not be at the same time in the same respect. That's not a physical thing as a law. And I can know it. Therefore, if I'm truly knowing that, I cannot just be physical. I cannot just be bodily. So Aquinas is profoundly convinced. You can pursue this further. That book will help with some things. I can offer other suggestions if you're still tempted by materialistic reductions of all reality, the body, the physics. Uh, I encourage you not to be that way, but if you are, there are good philosophical reasons not to do that, but if you wish. But for the moment, Aquinas believes there is physical reality, but that the human person also has a spiritual reality of the soul, and that this is knowable by human reason, and that the body and the soul, knowable by human reason, are united. Aquinas does not believe that there's any fundamental tension between your body and your soul. You are not a ghost stuck in a machine. You are not uh, trying to escape your physicality. The saint is not the one who never eats, never drinks, never has sex, uh, never sleeps. You're not an angel. You are a physical, spiritual being who is united in their physicality and their spirituality and meant to act well in your physical, spiritual unity. That 
governs. That is the heart of Aquinas' psychology, is that everything about the soul is linked to the body, and everything about the body, the human body, is ultimately pointing toward the soul. We are a fundamental unity. He said radically against dualism in the human person, a divided conception of the human person. Now, so he believes through sensation, through reason, I can begin to discover truths about the human person. Through reason, through experience, I can discover that uh, there are three parts to you, or four. There's your body, sure, but then even in your soul, there's an intellect by which you know the truth, there's a will by which you choose, intend, will the good, and then there are feelings, two types of feelings called concupiscible by which you desire what is pleasurable, and irascible by which you oppose or flee or overcome what is non-pleasurable, painful. And those feelings are where the body and the soul touch. They're both, they're psychosomatic. They're both physical and they're spiritual. They, they happen to your body, but you can also experience uh, spiritual change. Spiritual change leads to physical change. So through reason, he believes that you can get to know all of those aspects about the human person. And now, and he believes you get that again, certain knowledge, causal knowledge, starting in sense perception, we move from what is best known, the body, I feel my mother holding my hand as an infant, to what is less known, oh, she's unhappy because I'm judging by the way her body is, oh, and I begin to, you can do more deductions, more reasoning, leading to more understandings, oh, my mother, she's not just saying things randomly, she has an intellect, and she's free, I can't just command her around the room, she has a will. Oh, she has feelings, emotions, which are where the body and the soul touch, etc., etc. Aquinas believes that this scientific uh, worldview touches deeply upon the nature of the human person. And now, what type of science is this? You might think that Aquinas studied the nature of the human person and the nature of the human soul so that he could mess with you or us, make us better people. But I want to emphasize, and you'll see this if you read this, his first and primary question is speculative. It's not, how can I convert people? How can I change people? When he approaches psychology, like he approaches all sciences, it is first and foremost, what is the case? For Aquinas, the question is, what is the human person? What is the human soul? What do human persons do? What does the soul do? And only after that, what ought human persons and human souls to do. He is not looking, he is not studying, his science about the topic of the human person and of the human soul is first and foremost speculative. He wants to know the way things are. Now, we're going to wind down here because we just have a few moments left. I'll say one more thing just to show you how also this, his psychology is the gateway to all the other sciences. But notice, this is where I might posit, opine, as an amateur, as a dilettante, as an extrinsic observer, a non-expert, a difference in how we do science today or how we do thinking. How many of you, or even I, came to our respective disciplines, our fields, this institution, my institution, simply because we wanted to know the way things are. Did you? Good. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas would love this woman right here. She raised her hand. So that's, if you did good, most of us, though, from a young age, were told, get an education, not to learn the way things are, and be perfected in, because the more the soul knows about reality, the more universals you know, the more perfect you'll be, but so you can make a living, you can change the world. You can help other people. Most of, and this is kind of the most interesting point. If you get one point tonight, it would be this. The modern conception of what we're doing when we think about things is always to put practical above the speculative. And for Aquinas, for Aristotle, that was backwards. Because you don't can't do something unless you know what something is. This is always higher to know the way things are. So now when we come to psychology, so you go to Aquinas' psychology class, if he were here, we resurrect him from the dead, bring him in here, he says, what's going on? We say, don't worry about it, we teach him English, now he's back, he's teaching psychology. His question would be primarily, what, is, what does it mean to know? What does it mean to will? What does it mean to love? 
What does it mean to, to know truth? What's when truth is absent? What's error? What happens when you feel sexual desire, hunger, fear, alcohol, cravings for alcohol? What happens when you're afraid, you're embarrassed? He's just looking at what is the case. Well, when we come, perhaps, to this question, it's how can we help people? How can we change people? How can I practice therapeutically what I've learned? Aquinas' conception of psychology was not one that ended up on the couch. It was something that all human persons could know, namely the truth about reality. So that's the meta thing. In answer to our question, is Thomas Aquinas a physiologist? <laughs> if we mean by that, he's someone who wants to simply know what the human person is what it means to be human, what's human nature, how the intellect works. Yeah. Is he a psychologist? Well, if we mean by that, what we meant by physiologist, sure. But if we mean by Aquinas, was he a psychologist in that he was looking to change the way people are? That he wanted all the other Dominicans to come into his cell, his room, and lay on the couch, and he would help them work through their problems? That was not his primary goal. He was a scientist interested in reality, and the speculative was always first. Now, in conclusion, and this is where Thomistic psychology is uniquely interesting amongst all the philosophical, the natural, the reason-based scientific disciplines, because it stands at the center of all the sciences. There are many sciences. And if you want to understand more about what the sciences are, my favorite work of Aristotle, and one of my favorite works of Aquinas, is uh, Aristotle's Posterior Analytics. That will put you to sleep, but I love it. It's where he looks at what does it mean to know something? How does the mind move from the known to the unknown? How does argumentation work? Also known as material logic. Um, we won't go there. But so here we have the human person. This is what we'll conclude with. Also known as today, psychology. What does it mean to be human? This, because the human person is both bodily and spiritual, has a soul, and that soul is united to a body, the human person is a microcosm of all that there is. So what's the first science, the first discipline that a philosopher through reason can learn? That's what we would call natural philosophy or, and this is the title of Aristotle's book, physics, by which we understand anything that's united to matter. This is the science of things which are physical, physics. Big surprise. Bodily. Material. Physics studies things that are bodily and therefore are changeable, are movable, are alterable. That overlaps with psychology because we have a bodily dimension. So it overlaps with physics, but it's higher than physics because the spiritual is, of course, higher than the bodily. Additionally, there's another science which is the Middle Ages is most famous for, and this is called metaphysics. Metaphysics literally means after the physics. It's what comes after you study physics. If you went to Aristotle's school, the Lyceum, at the end of your physics course, you would have proved through physical material things, motion, change, that there has to be a spiritual being, an uncaused cause, who is beyond all matter in motion. The first mover for Aristotle, God for Aquinas, and that means you can study being beyond what is physical. That there's more types of being than simply physical being. Being is broader and more inclusive than just physics. There is such a thing as spiritual being. So metaphysics studies all being, the physical and the spiritual, but recognizes that being is broader than physics. And notice, therefore, that here, this higher science also touches on, even though it's distinct from, our psychology. Because just as psychology had some overlap with physics, what we can know through the physical sciences, so it overlaps with metaphysics because what we can know by human reason alone about what is immaterial, including the soul. So the moment you as a psychologist reason from the body and you get to the soul, there's a spiritual principle in here. This isn't just a physiological organism. There's a soul, and that's immaterial, you have already begun, in addition to doing psychology, to be doing metaphysics, because you're talking about spiritual immaterial being. And finally, this is all reason. 
no faith. But if you would join Aquinas, not just in his academic philosophical studies, but if you'd follow him into the chapel and begin to do faith, then, of course, you get to theology, by which we understand God from within. You can still get to God from here and here. That's another lecture. This is where you start with God, through faith, because God speaks to you, tells you about himself. And then you understand that your body and your soul, your human personhood, is not purposelessness. But you have a finality, a goal that's irrevocable. Even if you're an atheist, even if you're a a murderer, a liar, a cheat, a thief, never go to church. Your being is meant to, in your body and in your soul, is ordered to God. Why is that? It's because the human soul, human person, is ordered to truth, to goodness, to reality, to love. There is no human person who's perfected by lies, who's perfected by hatred, who's perfected by myths, illusions. All people are meant for real goodness, real truth, real reality, and therefore all of their psychological, their psychosomatic powers are ordered to the cause, the principle, the foundation for all of reality, for all truth, for all goodness, for God. So for Aquinas, you can study this, human psychology, and recognize the bodily and the spiritual apart from anything else, just to know what is the case. Speculative. And if you're really smart, as soon as you do the start with the bodily, like, oh yeah, we need some physics, because that deals with materiality, and we have a material component, a material principle. And if you're really, really smart, you say, yes, I'll start here, and I'll bring in the physics, but I'm also going to need some metaphysics, because that deals with immaterial being, and we have an immaterial component. And then if you're really not just smart, but you are open to the spiritual life, you would also recognize that written into the human person, into the structures of the human person, is an orientation that's irrevocable again to God because he's the cause of reality, both physical and spiritual. And that's where, and we'll stop here, you would move then from the speculative to the practical. Because once you recognize, ah, the human person is meant in their body and in their soul for eternal truth, for eternal goodness, for eternal happiness, it's only found here. The next question is, how do I get there? And that's when you move beyond the speculative to the practical. And that's when Father Aquinas steps up, not just the philosopher, the scientist Aquinas. So again, conclusion. Is Aquinas a medieval uh, physiologist or psychologist? It depends what you mean by that. I would hope, however, we will at least share with him, this is what I'd encourage for the research, the interest in the way things are, not just the way things can be, not just in the way we can shape them, but in what is real, what is real about the human person, and what all was connected to that study, physics, metaphysics, and maybe, just maybe, um, going back to when you were talking about how, like, a child looks at the expressions of their mother, like, before she says things like that, and kind of gets to the immaterial or knowledge and things like that. Um, how do you explain to people that try to use that argument with animals, like, expressions of the dog or, like, things like that? And, yeah. Oh, no, very good question. So no, this is where, so the dog, so there's three types of souls. The human person has them all virtually. So that's another, you can read that book if you want to So. So no, uh, plants have a soul, a principle of life. And animals, non-human animals, they have a soul as well. And they have feelings. They don't have an intellect and a will. But they do have an animal soul, which if you, like, you know, we've seen that when dogs or cats get hurt or they're scared, they, their face changes. Oh, yeah, no, no. They're aware. No, there's some of those dimensions are there too. The difference with a human, and this is what the child presupposes, is that Reason and will govern our emotions. They know, children know instinctively, adults aren't just feeling things. That they make a decision to feel, 
and to show feelings as in accord with right reason. So yeah, no, children recognize that, which is why, like, which is why it's hilarious. You see my nephews, Levi and Abraham, you know, they can't, this is what a child, they don't control their emotions. They're just, you know, whatever. <laughs> I want that, I want, you know, literally twitching in the corner because mom said no to an ice cream cone. Now, my brother-in-law, Josh, comes and he too likes ice cream and asks my sister, hey, can I have an ice cream cone? And she says, no, he doesn't start twitching in the corner either. Why? Because he's an adult. What does an adult mean? We say he's an integrated person, which means that his body and his soul, his intellect and his emotions, his will, everything is all united. So he says, okay, uh, yeah, on my bodily level, I would like to have that sweet goodness in me. But my intellect and will says it's not absolutely necessary, and therefore I will not have it at this moment, the ice cream cone. Um, so even a child though, intuits that parents are not just expressing random feelings, that there is a higher power of intellect and will at work. However, um, animals certainly have that. Oh, yeah. The definition of a human person, by the way, is a rational animal. We are animals, but we have a rational soul because we have an intellect and the will, which non-rational animals like the cat and the dog do not have. And the, re and the key for how do we know if you have a rational soul or not is the question, why? Cats and dogs, they have heads. Like if you put out a fish, another uh, fish, or yeah, we had goldfish when I was a kid and had a cat on one of those little things. The cat was very interested in that, it came over. I left my room, come back in three minutes later, the fish bowl's on the side and the fish is flopping around the casket ready to, the cat has intentionality, but it has no conception of fishness, catness, harmony, common good. It can't abstract onto the spiritual universal scale. 